I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in our series, God and the Whole Person. For the next two weeks, we are asking these questions. What does it mean for our minds to be made in the image of God? How has sin deformed our minds? How does Jesus heal our minds? And how do we open ourselves to his healing? Um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, one of the most acclaimed novels of the 21st century is a book by Jonathan Franzen called The Corrections. Uh, I was uh, very late to the Jonathan Franzen phenomenon because he writes what many call the great American novel. He writes epic, sprawling, domestic dramas, and ordinarily that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that, that I would like to read. But I got tired of having it recommended to me all the time and constantly brought up by all my favorite authors. And so one fall a few years ago, I finally went and borrowed a copy of the corrections from the C Street Library. I says to myself, I says, oh, so this thing is constantly touted as one of the best of the 21st century. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Well, we'll just see about that. I says, here I come to reign on all things popular. And I read it just so I could say that I did and then, you know, poo-poo the thing. I loved it. I couldn't help it. (laughs) I was enthralled. I tried not to be. I was devastated. It was one of the best novels I had ever read. There, I said it. As a writer, I felt totally inadequate because of this thing. Now, I should say this book is very R-rated, so if you have a fragile sensibility with that sort of thing, there you go. There's a warning. Don't go run out. Oh, Josh told me to read this thing. The Corrections revolves around the lives of an elderly Midwestern couple and their three adult children that are coming together one last Christmas. The patriarch of the Lambert family is a guy named Alfred. Alfred is a strict, unaffectionate father who has pushed his wife and his kids away with the cold distance demonstrated by so many men of his generation. Alfred believes, deeply believes certain things about what it means to be a man, about his rights, about his privacy. In one scene, his wife asks him, why or what is the reason that you are so cold to me? Why are you so unhappy? And Alfred says, I will go to the grave before I tell you. Alfred believes certain things about the roles of husbands and the roles of wives and about decency and respect, about blue-collar dignity and being an American and being or having well-behaved, respectful children, things that he learned from his father. And he goes on believing them with this sort of lived rigor until he has ushered almost everyone who ever knew and loved him from his interior world. And eventually Alfred develops Parkinson's and increasingly unmanageable symptoms of dementia, becoming trapped in the cold, hateful world of his own mind, completely unmoored from reality itself. The things Alfred believed in his mind made the world an unhappy place for him. And eventually, the undoing of his mind makes the world a nightmare. And one reason the corrections managed to connect so deeply with so many readers is that we know these characters, the do-gooder son, the screw-up son, the distant daughter, the unhappy mother, the father, solidified in the tomb of his own mind, eventually sealed shut. The mind, as John Milton famously wrote in Paradise Lost, is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8. 
John chapter 8, we are in a series throughout the season of Lent about what it means to know God and to follow Jesus with the entirety of your personhood, all of who we are vulnerable before God himself. The plan for the next two weeks, this week and next week, is to talk about the mind. Uh, my friend uh, has a great book called Live No Lies. Uh, we have a couple copies for sale at cost at the bookstore after the gathering if you're interested. The question that we're asking this week and next week is what does it mean for our minds to be made in the image of God? How has sin deformed our minds? How does Jesus heal our minds? And how do we open ourselves to his healing? Now, here's the thing about all this. I'm not a neuroscientist. I, I don't know if you know this about me. I hate to sp spoil any longstanding illusions about my qualifications, but there you go. Not a neuroscientist, not a brain doctor, but I do have a brain, you know? So I'm like a hobbyist. I have one, so, I'm, you know, so that's kind of close. And the thing is, when we say brain, we often think of like the big wet organ behind our eyes or inside your skull. And then we say mind, and we mean whatever it is that gives us our ability to think. Functionally, we sort of separate those two things, at least colloquially. And I, I would argue that that distinction is actually helpful. Psychiatrists and neuroscientists Rebecca Gladding and Jeffrey Schwartz in their book, You Are Not Your Brain, define the mind as not just the soft pink walnut in your skull, but as, and I quote, directed attention. The mind, they say, is directed attention. And using that definition, they argue that one can use the mind or their directed attention, what one chooses to think about, to actually change the wiring of the brain over time. The mind is the human capacity to make certain decisions about where we will direct our attention and what goes in and out of our consciousness. Many philosophers argue that the mind is the last great frontier of human autonomy because no one can unilaterally coerce what you think. So, in that sense, our minds are free. But, ironically, what we think often becomes the very thing that enslaves us. So that to say, the mind is a powerful thing. Think about how much hangs on its just base functionality. I remember standing outside an ice cream shop a few years ago in Portland on a summer day as my kids looked on wide-eyed at a disheveled man in his soiled underwear gibbering into a paper bag. And they tugged on my shirt and said, Dad, what is he doing? And I remember telling them that just as your body can get sick or get hurt or not work the way it's meant to work, so can your mind. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example, but the truth is that where you direct your attention shapes the person you are becoming. Where you go in your mind and for how long and how often the patterns and rhythms of your thinking and what gives those patterns shape will play out on the stage of your personhood. I've been listening to this absolutely riveting uh, podcast miniseries, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. It's incredible to learn about how digital environments have fashioned different kinds of people, groups, tribalism, how solidified we can become in our ingested ideas just by spending time online in a non-physical environment. Your directed attention shapes the person you are becoming, and the person you are becoming is the product of your spiritual formation the process by which you are becoming more and more the, the person God intended you to be or less. Thus, the Apostle Paul, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. 
then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So yes, we believe, as the series title suggests, that following Jesus is about the whole person, about your emotions, your body, your story, the environment of your life, your memories and pain and joy, your vocation and calling, your community, your family. We cannot be reduced to just a mind, but our directed attention does have an incredible power over the person we are becoming, for better or for worse the magnitude of which can scarcely be overstated. And I'm not just talking about the imparting of information. Information in and of itself isn't the entire picture. And this is something that I once believed, honestly. I believe that if we have the right information, we will be changed by it. But information alone isn't enough. Getting all the right information into your head about the Bible and the teachings of Jesus is good, don't get me wrong. It's a massive part of spiritual formation, but information alone isn't enough which is why, you know, Advanced City, we think of church as not just what happens on Sunday, but what happens in smaller groups we call Advanced City communities throughout the week as well. And community is not just what happens in homes around dinner tables on a weeknight, but about here in the Sunday gatherings every single week. The two together are church and community. And both of them are about more than just routine get-togethers and songs and sermons. They are about practice. And that's what we're getting at with this series. You are not a mind only, but you are not less than that. And for the next couple of weeks, we want to talk about the role of the mind in your discipleship to Jesus, which brings us finally to the Gospel of John chapter 8. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of respect as we read, beginning with verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching." you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And everyone read this last line out loud with me. And the truth will set you free. These words are inspired by God. Thank you guys. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, before you close your Bible, look again at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, meaning for those who had already accepted Jesus as a teacher, as someone with authority, Jesus says, listen, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Authentic discipleship is conditional. If you hold to my teachings, do not reinterpret them, do not deconstruct them, do not release them, do not abandon them, do not compromise them, do not accept them in principle and then abandon them in lifestyle. Hold to my teaching. The Greek word that my Bible translates as hold is meno in Greek. That word is translated elsewhere as abide. The true disciple of Jesus refuses to abandon the teachings of their master, no matter the social, cultural, or even internal opposition. And then, then you will know the truth. And the truth will what? Again, set you free. Set you free. That is, believe it or not, a Jesus original. And it's one of Jesus' most famous quotations. So famous in fact, that it gets used all the time without being attributed to Jesus at all. From Jim Carrey, same, said it like this. And heck, this thing was in Bluey just a couple weeks ago. That's right. Bluey fans, parents, no one? Wow. Yeah, upgrade, upgrade your watching decisions for your children. One of the most aesthetically integritous television programs for children. 
Anyway, the point is, it's incredible to me that this Jesus original, this quote, has become one of his most cited inside and outside the church. People say it all the time. And that makes sense. It's poetic. It's quippy. It's Jesus, after all. You know, the world's greatest teacher has some good quotes. Go figure. But look at it this way. The truth will set you free implies, one, you aren't free. And that the thing from which you need freeing is untruth or lies. You need to be set free from the lies you believe. Now, earlier this week, I got a letter from a young man. He's really gracious, really kind, but he wanted to know why, oh, why do I constantly emphasize the necessity of what is often called orthodoxy or right belief in following Jesus. And he wondered, can't we just love? With a capital L, he wrote it. If we are loving people, he argued, does it matter whether or not what we believe is orthodox or what the church calls heretical? And I answered his question with a question. What is love? Who says? On whose authority is love one thing and not another thing. If we say love is this, not that, then we are making a definitive statement about what is and isn't true. And to believe the truth would be right, and to believe a lie would be wrong. In other words, orthodoxy, right belief. No one can function in the world without some standard of right belief, without some claim as to what is and is not True, we all do this inside and outside the church. Truth, in the simplest sense, is that which corresponds with reality. A lie, in other words, does not correspond with reality. Now, my daughter Isla, who is six, uh, became this voracious reader over the last year when no one was looking. I was so busy trying to convince my nine-year-old son, Beck, to read more that I almost missed when Isla started to bring home these chapter books way above her grade level and then stayed up in her bed with a tiny reading light every night, just reading through stacks of these things. They're mostly about dogs, which is great because that's the closest she'll ever get to having a dog. (laughs) So I say, enjoy, enjoy. Then, without any adult suggestion, without my, you know, influence at all, she started writing her own book. She cranked out a few illustrated children's books. One is about a little girl who learns a great dance move. It's called The Cool Move. Um, And then she started whittling away at a picture-less chapter book about several sisters, as far as I can tell so far, who get lost in a forest, and then they encounter this, like, sentient robot dinosaur that they mistake for an enemy until they invite it back to their home for a pizza party and become friends. At least that's chapter one. And I've noticed... The more that she reads, the more she's begun to demonstrate. It's pretty ordinary childhood tendency, so it may may have happened either way. Uh, But it's also the tendency of grown writers to hyperbolize, Um, often for no good reason at all, because it makes the story more interesting. The other day, she came home and she started telling us how her friend wasn't at school because the friend had become sick, which was true. But then the friend came back, and Isla told us that she'd learned that the friend had, had to stay overnight at a hospital. Naturally, we were full of questions. Is she okay? Did she say what was wrong? What's going on? It was all a mystery. No answers from these people. But Abby, my wife, volunteers in both of our kids' classes on Fridays, so she often hangs around to have lunch with them in the cafeteria. And she just saw the little girl and asked her point blank, are you feeling better? What was it like to stay in the hospital? Are you okay? And the girl just stared back at Abby, totally baffled. And then Abby looked at Isla, whose face had become like the wide-eyed emoji, you know, the one that looks embarrassed. It turns out that the girl did stay home with a cold. That part was true, but she'd never been to the hospital. 
And why, we were like, why? Why had you made that bit up? It makes no sense whatsoever. The answer is for the heck of it. She thought it was an interesting story, so she just told it. I told her, write that junk down. Keep it in your fiction, man. Put it on paper. You don't need to put that stuff in the real world. What Isla said wasn't true. We found out it did not correspond with reality. Now, I know that's a funny story, but stay with me on this. All of us, whether we like it or not, live out what psychologists sometimes call mental maps. Now, you could also call this your worldview or your narrative or your faith, a collection of ideas and what are ideas, but assumptions about reality. Now, your mind also has actual maps, like the ones that remind you how to get to work or the grocery store. And if that map corresponds with reality, then you'll arrive at your destination. If it does not, you will not, at least not until you correct the map. So in the same way, you live from mental maps for all of your waking life, maps that navigate relationships and sexuality and career, ambition, fear, anxiety, money, parenting, on down the list. These mental maps are little more than collections of ideas. And ideas are assumptions about reality and the way that life works in the world. In other words, you have certain ideas about what will make you happy and how to get it, and so you follow the map. And our entire world is built on people and their mental maps. Happiness, democracy, capitalism, human rights, theology is a collection of ideas about God. All of our ideas converge to create a mental map that we use to navigate reality. Or, put even more plainly, we believe things to be true and we live a certain way as a result. Now, hang in there, this is where it gets interesting. The bizarre and complicated thing about human beings is that we are capable of holding in our minds both things that do and do not correspond with reality, meaning we are able to envision what is and what is not. And this is what some scientists argue separates us, from, and our potential anyway, from other animals. It's the capacity to imagine, to imagine things that are not. So this means that we can conceive of a world that we cannot see, things like God, spirituality, intimacy, and relationship with the Creator, and on down the list. It also means that we can dream about a future that does not exist and then work to build it in the present. All creativity blossoms from the imagination, our ability to envision that which is not. Music, literature, film, programming, baking, architecture, it's all about envisioning what is not yet reality. But this incredible strength, this amazing attribute of the homo sapien is also one of its greatest weakness, weaknesses. We can imagine unreality for the betterment of humankind, of the world. We can envision something better and work to make it true. But we also possess the capacity to believe, trust in, and live by that which does not correspond with reality. Dallas Willard said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. We believe things to be true, and we live a certain way as a result. When what we believe about God, for example, or relationships, or sexuality, or ambition, creativity are true, then we live in accordance with the truth, and the truth will set you free. But when, we, when what we believe about God or relationships or sexuality, ambition, money, the world are not true, then we are living lies. We open not just our minds, but our bodies and our souls, our emotions, the world around us 
to the poison of deception. Now, as an extreme example, again, think about the way the, the brutality of certain me mental illnesses like schizophrenia can imprison someone in the agony of unreality. But all of us can, and often do, believe things that do not correspond with reality. In other words, lies. We believe lies. Now, before we end, let's go back to John chapter 8. Are you guys still awake? You got a few more minutes in you? Great, thank you. Some of you are. The rest of you, just hang in there. <laughs> let's pick up the story in verse 33 and see what happens. Jesus says, the truth will set you free, one of his great quotes, and then the response in verse 33, they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone, meaning you are assuming that we're enslaved. We're not. How can you say that we shall be set free? Verse 34, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs in it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies." So, notice about this, these strong words of Jesus, to say the least, that one, Jesus believes in the devil. For Jesus, the devil is not a pre-enlightenment folktale, is not the imaginary boogeyman of sad, deluded religious fundamentalists. Jesus, in keeping with the Hebrew scriptures, believes that the devil is a very real being. The scriptures describe it all sorts of ways as a great dragon or a serpent or this dark desert creature, the king of death and the grave, the tempter, the evil one, the slanderer. In one instance, the god of this age or the Satan. Dr. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project argues that Satan is not a name, it's a title which is why in Hebrew, it has the word the in front of it. The Satan means the adversary because he isn't for anything. Rather, he's anti-everything, working through lies to drag us back into darkness and disorder. Jesus calls the devil a liar, the father of lies, actually. From the beginning of it all, Jesus says the devil has bringing death through lies. When the personification of the devil, the snake in the Genesis story, approaches Eve with sinister intent, he does not bare his fangs, he doesn't actually strike at all, he doesn't bring a club or, or some kind of sickness or no constricting stranglehold, he brings an idea. Psychologist M. Scott Peck in his book, People of the Lie, calls the devil, and I quote, a real spirit of unreality. 
The story of humanity's descent into darkness from the opening pages of the Bible is a story about believing a lie. The lie was and is God doesn't know what's best. We do. And so we redefine goodness based on a lie. The church father, Ignatius of Loyola, famously defined sin as the unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. It's the oldest trick in the book. God, who knows everything, who made us, who loves us, says, this is what's best. And then a voice, a, a nagging whisper in our hearts, in our minds, the accuser, our own broken desire, starts to whisper, is it really best? It doesn't seem best. I doubt it's best. I don't believe it's best. And we choose instead that which will ultimately destroy us. Paul writes in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Now, notice that sin pays out in death. That's the language. It doesn't say that God answers sin with death, but that death is the natural consequence of sin freely chosen, meaning when we choose to live other than God's best way for our own human flourishing and the flourishing of the entire human family of creation itself, when we choose other than that, the natural consequence is death. A friend of mine put it this way. He says that to say that God answers sin with death is like saying that the doctor answers drinking poison with death. God offers to rescue us from sin and death, but we would often rather drink the poison. Why? We believe things that aren't true. We're really good at it. We've been fooled into believing that poison is really, really good. It's beautiful. It's freeing. It's the very best. So much better than that mean-spirited, micromanaging God who won't let us drink poison. But the incredible sophistication of the devil's lies is that they never sound that simple. They never sound like, drink the poison, it's actually great. Instead, the lie is subtle. And the lie is mixed with elements of the truth. And then it's custom-tailored to your unique story and your unique proclivities. The lie preys on the ways that you have been hurt and the way that you have hurt other people. Your pain, your hurt, your wounds are often the gateway for the evil one to slither into your life and start whispering, implanting the best-suited, custom-fit lie for your wounding so that it will take root. And many of you have been around for a while, you already know, I've talked about this often, that uh, years ago, I went through a very dark season of intense uh, self-loathing and despair, and it got so bad that it took years, years of therapy and inner healing prayer and community and spiritual formation to climb my way up out of the abyss. And during the worst of it, I sincerely believed that I was this fundamentally loathsome thing. I, I don't say this for sympathy or shock value. I, I absolutely believed to the core of my being that the entire world and everyone in it would be better off if I were gone. Now, of course, neither of those things is true, but the lie didn't come to me that naked. It didn't come to me that brash and said, the whole world would be better off if you weren't in it. Instead, it came slowly over years, and it preyed on my wiring my kind of bent towards cynicism and pessimism, 
and it preyed on a few things that were said to me as far back as grade school, which is insane, and it pried them open slowly, and it started with, of all things, the truth. That was the ferry boat into which it entered my consciousness. The true things, like, you're not perfect. True. You, you can behave kind of lousy sometimes. That's true. There are people who don't really like you that much. That's also true. Okay, but then for years, it kept going, and it became, you're actually kind of terrible, and you do just terrible, terrible things all the time, and so many people find you annoying or obnoxious or pretentious, and then the whisper became, in my mind, not just a whisper, but a settled objective reality out of which I lived all the time. You are fundamentally loathsome. The world would be better if you weren't in it. The people in your life would be better off if you were gone. And the incredible precision of it, now I can see the depth of the deception was that um, self-hatred and despair require such an outrageous amount of self-obsession, but I had become convinced that the whole thing was actually self-effacing, that I was being very selfless to not like myself. It was a lie tangled up in lies. And then by the grace of God, uh, most, of, most of this was the grace of God and my wife, Abby, who refused to beat down, be beat down by it. They wouldn't give up on me. She wouldn't give up on us. And she told me, she's the one who said, you have to call the therapist. She's the one who went with me to pastor's houses for prayer. She was the one who wouldn't let me sit or stay in the dark place. And because of her, because of the church, you guys, because of the family of God, most of all, because of the relentless love and, and grace of King Jesus, the lie was eventually slowly over years of time uprooted, but then shattered, systematically destroyed in the healing light of God's love. Today, I don't dislike myself at all. I actually love myself as God loves his beloved son. I have not indulged the terrible darkness of despair in years. But once or twice since then, in moments of like intense stress or frustration or sadness, I can kind of remember it, if that makes sense. I can see a flicker of it in the distance the way that I imagine like an alcoholic remembers the taste of booze. It's amazing to me that had that lie overpowered me, which it almost did, I could have actually died. He is a murderer from the beginning. Not all lies are so overtly sinister like that, but they can take root and the longer they live within you, they change you. This happens all the time. Western Christians have mostly grown up around the idea of like original sin, that we're all broken, the fall and all that. And we get, to some degree anyway, that our bodies are what we say is subjected to death because our experience confirms it. People die. And for the rest of it, the brokenness, sin and all that, we use language of the heart. You know, I think of Jeremiah and the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Our hearts are turned away from God, which is true. But many of us kind of stop there without bringing our minds into the full picture of our brokenness. Our minds, like our bodies, like our hearts, suffer the effects of a broken world marred by sin and evil and death. But the mind for us, is kind of the last frontier of our autonomy. We don't like to think of ourselves as easily influenced or deceived because it makes us feel dumb. It makes us feel as if our valid perspectives might be naive or ill-informed or just outright wrong. But the truth is that even our minds are subject to brokenness. 
Now, of course, that doesn't mean that anything you ever think is just a total wash. If that were true, all of this would be pointless. It just means that like our bodies, like our hearts, our minds need saving. We know this already. We know that incredibly intelligent people can be guilty of horrific evil. We know that very smart, very educated people can believe terrible things that result in all kinds of suffering and injustice. And the easy, and I would argue lazy, way of confronting that paradox is to accuse evil people of stupidity. That's the kind of social media approach. These people who believe things that I don't believe, they, th that do terrible things, believe terrible things, they're just idiots. Clearly, they know nothing, they're just stupid, and I'm smarter. We like that because it makes us feel better, superior, smarter, because if even the very intelligent are not immune to lies, what does that mean for the rest of us? It's a terrifying thing to consider. It means, and please, please listen to me on this, we need someone to tell us the truth, to teach us what is true and what is not true. If you hold to my teaching, Jesus said, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who are we? What are we here for? What's best? What does it mean to be a human being or to be free? And more than that, who's God? What's the point of all this? A.W. Tozer famously argued that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. First time I heard that quote, I thought, oh, that can't be right. It sounds too final. But the more I hear it, the more I think that what we believe about God ultimately gives shape to what we believe about ourselves and other people and the world itself. Whatever we believe is ultimate, will have the say in the person we are becoming, whether it's Jesus or Allah or Buddha or progressivism or conservatism or sexual identity, gender identity, career, family, TikTok, whatever it is that we believe is at the center of all this, whatever it is that's telling the truth is forging the you of the future right now. No one has any say in that. We all are becoming someone else over time. Spiritual formation is not a uniquely Christian concept. It's happening to all of us. So who do you trust to tell you the truth? The real, ultimate, unshakable truth. Do you go to a social media feed for the truth? Or a 24-hour news cycle or your peers or a book or a professor or your own intuition or your desire, what you want? Or the creator God revealed in Jesus, who is self-sacrificial love. Isn't it incredible? Think about this. Isn't it incredible that the God of the universe, the Savior of the world, came to humanity as a teacher? And in his teaching, we find the truth, and in his truth, we're set free. The reality of our minds subject to sin in a broken world is that we can't find in and of ourselves truth. We can't do it. And when we hear the truth, we don't always like it. Sometimes the truth is an affront to our minds which are subjected to death by sin, brokenness, evil, a fallen world. Which begs the question, how do we follow Jesus? Part of our discipleship journey is to steadily and listen, systematically replace the lies that we believe 
and that we have been led to believe with the truth of our teacher and master and King Jesus. This is the process that the Apostle Paul called the renewal of the mind. Dallas Willard put it like this. He said, the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. When Jesus began his ministry with the incredible incendiary call to, and I quote, repent and believe, he did not simply mean stop being immoral and believe in your mind intellectually that I died on the cross for your sins. For one, he hadn't done that yet, so clearly that's not what he meant. He meant change everything, reorient your heart and your mind and believe in everything I say, my vision for life and the kingdom of God. Believe not just that Jesus is God or that he died and was raised. Yes, believe those, but believe as in whole life obedience. In Jesus' life and teachings from Matthew to John throughout the Old and New Testaments and all he said about money and judgment and sex and gender, the body, prayer, fasting, enemy love, nonviolence, forgiveness, faithfulness, community, worship, everything he said. Hold to his teaching so that you can be his disciples. Repent and believe with everything that you are. Trust in Jesus for the truth in and over all things. To repent and believe is not a one-off salvation experience, a momentary profession of faith, a, a conversion moment where you say a prayer and then change your you know, post-mortem destination. To repent and believe is the life's work of an apprentice unto a master. In all things, repent and believe forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. This is the process, the ongoing process of confronting, rebuking, purging the lies that we are led to believe in order to consistently intake, accept, and believe the truth or the knowledge in the language of the scriptures of Jesus. All of us have experienced, do experience, will experience temptation. The nagging pull of our own desire to do other than what Jesus says is best. That is true of every human being, will be true of every human being. And when that alarm rings in the mind or in the heart or even in the body when the desire sparks like a small match or or even when it burns like a wildfire consider this how does that temptation reveal where you have yet to trust the truth about jesus what does it reveal about your desire for something other than what god says is best how does it reveal where you have yet to fully trust that what God wants is your deepest happiness. Following Jesus, in one sense, is the lifelong effort to transform what we can accept intellectually into what we believe deep down in the core of our very being, at a soul level. It's about more than just mental assent. 
accepting in your mind that what Jesus says is true. It's about living into and out of the freedom of believing that what Jesus says really is the truth. Next week, we'll talk at length about the practical side of how we pursue this together in the reality of everyday life. But for tonight, broad strokes, this is about learning to absolutely fill your mind with the truth of Jesus. It sounds simple because it actually is. Learning to, by all available means, bring our minds back again and again and again to the teaching, the story, the truth of Jesus. Now, honestly, this is, I think we can all admit to ourselves, difficult at first. Please listen. As you fight against distraction, against declining attention spans or a host of screens and ideas competing for your heart and your mind and the battle to become someone else, it becomes less arduous the further you go. It becomes less like a battle at all. Because filling our minds with the beauty and truth of Jesus changes us. And we begin to, by default, want more of that truth, where it becomes less like imposed discipline and more like the actual desire of our heart. You already know this from experience. If you devote attention to many series or streaming services or TikTok, you often want more of those things because they shape your desire and your mentality and the natural flow of your attentive energy. I mean, my God, if I had a quarter for, I don't usually watch TV shows at all, but if I had a quarter for every time someone's like, you got to try this show. Now listen, it's bad for the first 45 episodes, but then it's amazing. I'm like, I'm going to spend 45 hours waiting for this thing to get, you got to be kidding me, get out of my face. But you understand that you power through something that doesn't really come naturally, and eventually your perception of the thing has changed itself, and it becomes less like work. You want to do it. That's true of all kinds of things. And the same is true if you devote your attention to Jesus. Many of you know this from experience or have known this from oscillating experiences in your life. So this week, my humble invitation is to take one small step this week, tomorrow, one small step in context of your life, your rule of life, your discipleship to Jesus in this season, in this stage. Wake up and read from the Gospels, even for just a few minutes. And then before you close the book and move on, say, I I read my chapter, I read my 10 minutes, whatever it might be, just sit. Sit in the quiet and direct your attention to God. And allow him, ask him to fill your thoughts. Acknowledge his presence, that you are with him and he's with you, just for a few minutes. Everyone in any season of life can find just a few minutes in their day to do this. It seems small, but it starts somewhere. It has to start somewhere. When I come home from work, I always, you know, scream and hug each of my three kids and give them a kiss and ask how their day was, routine every time. The other day, I came home and my daughter Isla almost tackled me and she threw her arms around me and she started kissing me all over my face and she handed me this love letter that she had written and she said, I was just thinking about you so much. Now, all my kids are really affectionate, and like I said, I always hug and kiss them when I come home, but it was kind of amazing to me the way I had somehow uniquely, I don't know what I did, but I uniquely filled her thoughts that afternoon afternoon so that 
the moment she saw me, the only reaction was to run to me and hold on to me and kiss my face. If we keep God at arm's length, a distant concept for church conversation and the odd prayer when something goes wrong, how can we be surprised that our hearts are not drawn to him with irresistible affection? But if we begin to fill our minds with God, with the things of God, with the beauty of Jesus, then eventually we will become the kind of people that run to him again and again to embrace him without pause or inhibition or fear and say to him, like my daughter said to me, I was just thinking about you so much. Let's pray and ask God's spirit to teach us how. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.